as we're talking about children, we are blessed with brilliant children here. Uh, the children who attend this church are brilliant. You say, how do you know, Pastor Greg? Well, I'm going to tell you a story. What, a true story happened last Sunday. I was talking to one of the grandmothers out in the hallway, and she goes, Pastor Greg, you don't know what happened. My little grandson was listening so well, but then he started tugging on my sleeve. And he said, Grandma, Grandma, Pastor Greg used more than seven words. Brilliant. Yeah. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Yes, more than seven words. Oh, brilliant children. But unless the children here go, but we don't have a very smart pastor, which would be true, I, I want to I clarify here. When we talk about the seven last words, we are talking about the seven last sayings, the seven last statements. These are the statements that reveal the amazing heart, the big heart, the incredible heart of Jesus. Jesus shares these as his precious lifeblood is dripping out by precious drop by drop. These statements tell us the most dramatic tale of all, for they give us unparalleled insight into the very heart of Jesus. And we see in full display his beautiful heart. And these are not his deathbed confessions, for as we saw last week, he had nothing to confess, but because of the perfect life that he lived, they are the powerful declarations that would change human history and on a more intimate level. For all who believe, it will change our eternal destiny. You say, but Pastor Greg, you, you talked about seven. That number. Well, again, brilliant. Seven pops up a lot in Scripture. And I'm not talking biblical numerology. I'm not talking about some of these far out things, but but there are some numbers in Scripture that have meaning. And seven is the number of completion. We bump into it in Genesis. The seven days of the week, or the seventh day, the Sabbath. In the temple, there is the menorah, the candlestick, with the seven parts to it. We have uh, in, in the Scriptures also, remember, we have in Proverbs the seven deadly sins. When Joshua invades the land, he has the seven priests blowing the seven horns as they walk around the city of Jericho seven times. In the book of Revelation, we have the seven weeks of tribulation. In Matthew chapter 13, we have the seven parables of Jesus. John talks about the seven I am statements, and he reveals the seven miracles of Jesus. And it goes on and on. So it is, it is fitting that these last seven statements complete the picture of the heart of Christ. Last week, Jesus following rabbinic tradition starts with the key thought. Forgive. Friends, I want you to hear me clear. 
God's heart is a heart of forgiveness. Now, as my friend likes to say, it's not peanut butter and jelly forgiveness. I just want to smear forgiveness over everything. It is a heart that is desires deeply to forgive. Forgiveness is the heart of the kingdom of God, but forgiveness is always partnered with something else. Forgiveness is always partnered with repentance. For example, Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. If, if forgiveness is the heart of the kingdom, then repentance is the currency of the kingdom. And God brings them together. And here in Psalm 51, where, where we hear it, David is, is saying this, he's praying this after he has cheated and had an affair with Bathsheba. After he has plotted to deceive his friend. After he has plotted for the death and murder of his friend. And after he has taken what did not belong to him and made her his own. David finds forgiveness after brokenness. After repentance. And so Jesus, Jesus is drawn to this. Now this is becoming the strangest crucifixion they have ever seen. We hit a little bit on last week. Jesus was supposed to come and he was supposed to get on the cross and what he was supposed to do was to curse and, and uh, um, shout out profanity at the people in the crowd. And instead, he begins going, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. It even goes stranger because Jesus, as a rabbi, as a godly man, had a, in a biblical sense, the right to pronounce not cussing on them, not, not profanity on them, but a curse. You see, many of the godly men of the past did that. Jeremiah, one of the greatest Old Testament prophets, did that. He said, put a curse on this person. David in the Psalms did that often. We call them the imprecatory, imprecatory Psalms. They are Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Psalm 17, 38, 35, 58, 59, 69, 70, 79, 83, 109, 129, 137, 140. They are prayers that cry out for God's justice to fall on those who have hurt His people. And Jesus would have been well within His rights to ask God to pour out His justice on these people who are hurting Him. Jesus could have cursed them. And he would have been well within his rights. Think about what he could have done. Remember when he calls out Lazarus from the grave? Do you notice what he says there? He says this, Lazarus, come forth. Do you know why he did it that way? Because if he would have just said, come forth, the whole graveyard would have come walking out. So could you imagine if he would have said, Father, they are all cursed. What that would have meant for humanity. 
That's why when he prays, Father, forgive, part of what that forgiveness is saying is hold back, God. Hold back. Don't do it yet. Don't pour out yet. So the heart of God is to forgive. And he's drawn to the repentant, contrite, and broken heart. The heart of the lowly of spirit. And now we plunge back into the drama. Take your Bibles, turn with me back to Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32. Luke 23, starting in verse 32. I'm reading from the ESV. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And they came to the place that is called the skull, and they were crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was an also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals Here's where we're going to focus our attention today. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. I love it. In case you really are, save us too. I don't think you are but I'm going to hedge my bets. If you are, save us. I'm going to cover all my bases. There was a comedian who was talking about when he was in war, he was a soldier, and how he had a friend who had this all this jewelry, and he had you know, a Hindu symbol and a cross and he had a Buddhist symbol and he had a Muslim symbol and he had a symbol of several other religions. And he's going, buddy, what do you believe? He goes, I don't know. I just want to make sure I'm covered. Well, that's what he's doing here. I'm covered. Make sure I'm covered. Let's go on. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you were under the same sentence of condemnation, indeed, we, indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Two criminals. One on each side. We don't know their names. Oh, tradition gives them names. The one that says, be with me in paradise, is supposed to be Dismas. And the one that curses him is supposed to be Justice. But these traditions come from books written hundreds of years after the cross. In fact, these are the same books that many use today to make fantastical claims about Christ. Think about the Da Vinci Code. These are the ones that when you watch the History Channel or you see the Newsweek articles that come out that say, well, you know, there's these hidden Gospels. 
Friends, when people try to take you away from the Scriptures and say there's all these hidden books, here's a couple things to remember. Number one, they were all written hundreds of years after Jesus, whereas the Gospels were written within decades of Jesus. The New Testament was written within decades of Jesus. Second, all you have to do is read them to see that they're not Scripture. In fact, they teach some crazy things. In the Gospel of Thomas, for example, it ends with Jesus talking with his disciples, and his disciples see Mary and the other women coming up, and they say, send them away, send them away. Why? Because they have no part of heaven. They're not men. What? And Jesus says, no, let him come, because in the last day I'll make everybody men. Well, we saw way back in Genesis that in God's view, men and women are created in the image of God. He doesn't need to change them. You see, you can tell right there, that isn't of God. So just read it. Don't ever be afraid when someone says, well, you don't know about those hidden Gospels, those those hidden books. You know what? When they got ready to sit down and say, what is the Bible? They took the lists of all the local churches of the books that they were using. And they were all using the same books where you take trust in that. So we don't know what the name is of either man. But we do know that these two men according to Matthew, were armed, violent robbers. Chances are they probably hurt someone, maybe even killed someone. They had been scheduled to hang on the cross with Barabbas, so probably they're of the same gang and might even be part of Barabbas' gang. And at the beginning of the crucifixion, in Mark, we're told they both mocked Christ. And now this is turning out to be even even stranger crucifixion. Because normally all of them would team up together to mock the crowd. But now two of them are mocking the one in the middle who is praying forgiveness. And instead of attacking the crowd, they attack him. Very strange indeed. And then something stranger happens. We see it here. I just read it. They get into an argument. Something happens. Perhaps it was Jesus praying over and over, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. But the one thief starts listening and his heart starts breaking. And he becomes repentant. And he cries out, Don't you fear God? You are under the same sentence of condemnation, and indeed we justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Something had changed. He had repented. He acknowledges who Jesus was and that he was a sinner. And then he prays, Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. For those watching. 
It even gets stranger. For in the Greek, these words are in what they call the imperfect tense. Imperfect means it has to repeat. It's not just one and done. Here in the text, it looks like it's one and done, but it it isn't. So what you have is is this almost choir-like experience. You have one thief crying out, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Silence. If you're the Christ, Save yourself and us. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Silence. If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Silence. Question. Why is he hesitating? Why isn't Jesus answering? He does. Why is he waiting? Why is he waiting? Hmm. The answer is found in the answer. Now, isn't that profound? The answer is found. In the answer, I had my grandpa used to put it this way. Greg, when you lose something, it will always be in the last place you look. I used to scratch my head and go, what? He said, Greg, it's always in the last place you look. And finally it dawned on me, when I find it, I stop looking. When we look at the answer, we find the answer. Here's what's going on. Let's first look at the questions. Let's look at the question of the first thief. If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. What is he saying? Save my life. Okay, makes sense. Could Jesus have done it? Crowd, this is a response question. Could Jesus have saved him? Could they have stepped off the cross? Could he have healed him right there and there? So it's a prayer Jesus could have answered. But what is is the second guy praying? He's not praying, save my life, is he? He's praying, save my soul. 
If Jesus had answered, save my life, everything's over, and yes, that man lives another day, but humanity loses. The second prayer is a more challenging prayer. Because if Jesus answers that prayer, yes, Jesus has to go through the agony of the cross. He has to bear the wrath of God. He has to bear the the pain of our sin. He has to bear the separation from his heavenly Father. He has to bear the pain of hell itself. Wouldn't you hesitate? In fact, I know one pastor who, when he was preaching this, he said, I think it was even possibly Satan's last temptation that Satan might have even appeared. We don't have it in Scripture. Scripture doesn't tell us this. So don't walk out saying, hey, the pastor says that Satan appeared, and it it doesn't say this. But he said, in his speculation, he says, I wonder if Satan said, hey, here's your escape. You You can walk away, and still you win. But notice what Jesus does. He answers it this way. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I say to you, the way this phrase is constructed, it means, I say to you once and for all, I have made up my mind. Not only have I made up my mind, but I am determined. This is what I want to do. And then he adds, truly, or your Bible may say verily, or it may say amen. It means I'm all in. I will endure it. I will endure the pain. I will endure the suffering. I will endure the death. I will bear it. I will save your soul. Notice what he says. Today. Immediate. You don't have to wait. This is the promise to the believer. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment we as believers die, we are with Jesus. And notice both the promise I just quoted in the passage. Both stress on being with a person over a place. Did you catch that? Today you will be with me. Think about it. For the believer, heaven isn't a place. It's a person. A home is just a house without a family. Right? It's just a building. Uh, we, we just noticed the house behind us went up for sale. I guess we've already run somebody off. I, you know, I don't know. But they're just selling a building. It won't be a home until the family moves in. Our salvation, our heaven, is not being in a pretty place for all eternity. It's not sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Our salvation is being with God, being with Jesus. Our eternity is empty without Jesus. In fact, friends... 
I don't want to go to heaven if Jesus isn't there. Amen? But he is. And then Jesus puts the frosting on the cake. He, in, in Jewish theology, with the seven, there were seven heavens, and the seventh heaven was the best. And the name for the seventh heaven, the best words that they could come up with was paradise. Paradise. So hear me. Thief. I choose your soul. I'm going to give you myself today, and I'm not only going to give you myself, I'm going to give you the best heaven there will ever be. Why? Because I've made up my mind to go the distance, because I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to forgive the repentant heart. Wow. Now there's a danger on this cross. This is something that I don't normally see as a pastor. I've been a full-time pastor now for 32 years. I've never witnessed this. It's called a deathbed conversion. He converts at his deathbed, the cross. The thief becomes a follower of Jesus Christ on the cross. And you may be here today saying, you know what, I'm going to put off following Jesus Christ until, well, I've lived my life and done the things I want to do. Because right before I die, I'll flip the switch. May I beg of you not to do that. Because for the most part, that doesn't happen. For the most part, we don't know when we're going to die. We don't know if we're going to die in our sleep or in an accident. We don't know what our condition will be. In fact, I would beg of you to make today the day you come to Christ. In fact, after the service, I'm going to hang out in the back. would love to talk with any of you who might want to come and meet Jesus Christ for the first time. But you might be thinking, come on, pastor. Come on. Today? Really? Really? Aren't you overdoing it? Aren't you manipulating us here, doing this little emotional thing? I want to echo the words of a, another country church preacher in a little church a lot like this. He stood up and he said the same thing I said. He said, please come to Christ today. Get right with God. Don't wait. And he'd say, believer, if you are broken with Jesus Christ, you need to repair that today. And if you've never embraced Jesus Christ, please do today. Well, in his little country church, a man stood up and began to argue. He argued with the preacher, and in fact, he even used the story I use today. He said, Pastor, you say, don't wait too long to get right with God. Come on, Pastor. What about the thief on the cross? He waited. Look how it ended for him. The pastor answered with two words. 
Which thief? Which thief? Shall we pray? Friends, as we bow our heads, again, if you as a believer are broken with Jesus Christ, at the end we're going to have people in the prayer corner. We'd encourage you to pray with them. And if you've never embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior, we'd encourage you to come talk with me or someone else from the church, and we would love to share with you how you could know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Father, we come to you today, and we place in your hands this wonderful truth that you are the God who loves to forgive, and that a broken and repentant heart you can't resist. You love it. And so I pray, Father, that we all, when we sin, would, would seek to be reconciled with you. That we would all seek to make right those things that we need to make right. And Father, if there is someone here today who doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.